0: So we're in uh, Luke chapter 14, picking up in verse 15 this morning. Lily and I will uh, be out of town next weekend. Pastor Kevin will be here in the pulpit. <laughs> he he w- remembered yesterday. He's like, oh yeah, I got to prepare a message. It's like, yes, you do. So Lily and I next week will be celebrating 45 years of marriage and we're going to get away for the weekend. So there. <laughs> but uh, <yeah. laughs> anyways, um, we're just going to take a little time and and so blessed, you know, that, um, you know, just a little over three months ago I broke my neck. So this will be the longest drive that we've been on. Uh, they, they were doing a, an assessment at physical therapy this week of me and they're asking all these questions and does it hurt to drive and it's like, I drive from my house to the church. That's six minutes. From church to my house, that's six minutes. From my house to physical therapy, that's five minutes. It's like I haven't really driven anywhere to know, you know. This weekend, I'll test that one out. I'm sure I'll be fine at this point. But uh, I said that because I want to just prep you. We're in chapter 14, but I already taught chapter six or chapter 15, and. Uh, When we came across this same account of the prodigal son that's found in Matthew's gospel, we were in Matthew, I jumped over to Luke and picked it up from Luke's gospel. So we're going to go from 14, and in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll jump into chapter 16. But I can give you the information, it's at the end of my notes, of where the prodigal son is found in our teaching ...when I've already taught that. So we're going to skip around a little bit. It is Lesson 64 in our Chronological Gospels. And thus far here in Chapter 14, we begin our study with the parable of the uninvited guest. And it seems that Luke grouped this parable that's also found in Matthew's Gospel. But he grouped it with the account of healing a man where Jesus, at the beginning of Luke 14 was in a Pharisee's house. He was invited for a Sabbath day meal and there was a man in the house, probably drifted in, uninvited, that had droopsy. Jesus healed this man that had edema. He had uh, basically uh, water retention in his body and Jesus healed him and sent him out and then the Lord kind of condemned the whole Sabbath day thing. It was another Sabbath day healing so he condemned the Pharisees, for their hypocrisy about not wanting to do good works on the Sabbath, when they broke the Sabbath, every Sabbath, when they cared for their animals, when they watered them, when they fed them, or Jesus specifically, using an example, if you had a ox or a donkey that fell into a ditch, you would lift that animal out. You wouldn't leave them there on the Sabbath. And if you know how to do good to your animals, how much more shouldn't we do good to the children of Abraham was the point that Jesus was ma- making. Their brothers, their sisters. And then he specifically talked to the host. And he said, basically, you guys have these Sabbath day feasts. And it sounds like maybe it's something they did often, but they would take turns doing them. So we're, where's the Sabbath day party this week? Oh, we're going to go to Pharisees, so-and-so's. House And we're going to eat there. And then it was all about a game of popularity to them. Jesus even said, I watched as you guys came in and and how you tried to get the best seats in the house. And he counseled them as a whole to don't take the best seat, take the lowest seat. And then if you're invited up, that's even better. But if you're in that high seat and uh, someone comes up and says, by the way, uh, this is for so-and-so, you're in the wrong place. Every time I think about that, I think of weddings where they have the place markers and you, you know, you just don't go sit anywhere and everybody's kind of seated in groups and importance to the married couple. And so normally, you know, I've never seen just anybody but the wedding party sitting at the uh Bride and groom's table, you know, it's it's arranged in that fashion. They were doing something similar to that. But Jesus said to the host, it's like next time, instead of inviting your family, your friends, the rich people in your community, go out and invite the blind, the lame, the maimed, bring them in. And that brings us right into this first parable where Jesus uses The rundown of the blind, the lame, the maimed, uh, once again the poor. He uses that same grouping of people in this parable that we'll look at at the beginning of our study. And so we'll also see today of Jesus stressing the priority that he is to have in our lives, that we are to count the cost. And finally, we're reminded that we are to be salt in our community and in people's lives so counting the cost the title of lesson 64 our first point the invited and uninvited guests Luke 14 15 through 24 counting the cost Luke 14 25 through 33 and the savory versus the unsavory Luke 14 34 and 35 we already prayed let's get into the teaching of God's Word and we're looking at verses 15 through 24 and and this is kind of triggering off what at the beginning in verse 15 somebody who is at the table hearing Jesus speak said these words blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of god and so this led Jesus to give the parable of the invited and uninvited guests, this parable that began in verses 15 through 20, and really into verse 21 a little bit, but 15 through 20, it tells us, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat the bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And sent his servants at supper time to say to those who have been invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. First said to him, the first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I ask that you excuse me. The second, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask To have me excused. And still another, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. So, kingdom parable, we know this because in Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 22 1, Jesus began it by saying, The kingdom of heaven is like. And so. Uh, There are certain parables that are known as the kingdom parables. This would classify as one of those parables because Jesus said so. And if Jesus said it, I'm going to believe it. Also, the Word of God tells us too, the kingdom of heaven is like. And in this parable, the certain man represents Jesus Christ. Uh, This great supper represents the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the invited guests were the elite contextually in luke 14 it seems to me that it fits the elite in the jewish society versus those that jesus talks about the poor the maimed the lame the blind and so looking at the elite the invited guests versus the poor the main the lame the blind but also it could be seen as jews versus gentiles the jews Initially, they're the children of God, they're the people of God, and uh, they are to be a kingdom of priests before all the people of the world, but they failed in their representation of God overall, collectively, they failed, God knew that they would, God sent a savior, his name is Jesus, he is the king of the Jews, he is the savior of both Jews and Gentiles. We come into that classification as uh, believers in Jesus Christ today. And so, believers and unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles, the elite versus the uh, poor in their society. And it was through Moses and the prophets that God sent an invitation to all his people that they would know about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this great feast that the Lord would have. God sent the invitation, the Feast the party was ready and the Lord sent out his servants to bring in the invited guests but each of the invited guests made their excuses one had bought a piece of ground another bought some oxen another one got married we actually looked at that got married in one verse on Wednesday from Deuteronomy 24 5 where it said if a man is married to his wife that first year he doesn't have to go to war but number two, he said, nor does he have to do any business. Now it wasn't meaning that he don't have you don't have to work f- for a year. Uh, deuteronomy twenty four five said that he could make his wife happy. Specific instructions for the groom of a newlywed couple. your job is to make your wife happy for one year. <laughs> Not only for a year, but you know, that first year. It is to be a big deal. It is not that you should take a year off. That would be sweet, but nobody can actually do that. Um, But no official business. So this kind of reminded me of that in the sense of this is an official, like a state dinner. The president invited you to come to the White House for dinner. It's like a big deal. It's like, no, I just got married. Deuteronomy 24.5 says... I can't do that happy happy wife happy life so I gotta heed the word of God on this one so they made their excuses but in reality Luke 21 34 tells us what was going on when Jesus said take heed to yourselves lest your heart be weighed down by carousing drunkenness the cares of this life that the day come on you unexpectedly now, we can eliminate, if we want to, in the context of the parable, it didn't say anything about carousing, anything about drunkenness, but it did talk about the cares of this life. I'm too busy. No matter the excuse, that was the bottom line excuse. I'm too busy. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. So the uninvited guest, verses 21 we pick up, through 24, it says, Then the master of the house, being angry said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lamed, and the blind. And the servant said to the master, It is done as you have commanded, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways, to the hedges. Compel them to come, that my house may be filled For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So since the invited guests refused to come, the master told his servants to go out. First, he said, go get the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Second, he told them to go beyond that. They went into the city, all the streets of the city, and said, Master, we're done, but there's still empty seats So then go out to the highways, to the byways, go beyond and invite them and bring them in, compel them to come. This reminded me of Acts 1.8 that tells us that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, in Judea and Samaria, um, the counties, we might say, the regions, And to the ends of the earth, compel them to come. That is the call of the church today. As we're out and about in our lives, in our city, here in Lake Villa, whatever city you might live in, but also wherever we might be. Lily and I had mentioned we're heading up to Door County. We've done this before uh, on, I believe it might have been an anniversary weekend. It's been a long time. Uh, since we had done that probably in our 40s at that time. But uh, even there, when we were there, we sat with a couple at a fish boil, and we spent a couple of hours talking with them about the Lord, not intending to do it whatsoever. But, you know, when someone asks you, so, John, what do you do for a living? Well... Glad you (laughs) asked. And you say you're a preacher, so you can get questions when you say you're a preacher. And we got questions that night. We actually closed the restaurant down with that couple. We weren't intending for that, but God was. So when you're out and about, spread the word of God. Be sensitive to invite, to bring, to compel that people would discover a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they may be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. However, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, those who are rejected by the society, they would be the ones to sit at the Lord's table. And the Lord tells us, and this has always been the Lord's intent, and we find it in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, quoting Joel 2.32, You find it two times in the New Testament in Acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13 that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel 2.32, the complete verse reads this way. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So the Lord calls. Whomever the Lord calls, and whomever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. They shall sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is our hope. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 speaks a little bit about the marriage supper. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen linen, is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said, "Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Those who believe in Jesus will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We don't have to wonder about it. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. One day we will sit and fellowship at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now Jesus goes on to talk about counting the cost And there was a great multitude with him, so he's outside of the house. That's how it begins in verse 25. The dinner party now is over. Jesus warns then the multitudes to count the cost. In a similar way, we find it in Matthew 10, 34 through 39. There, Matthew seems to stress the division that will come upon those who believe the division in their own families. And here it seems to stress um the priority that we are to have with jesus in our lives so they're similar one gives a little more detail one goes a little different direction matthew 10 34 and 39 very similar but they go in two different directions for the point if you read the context here in Luke 14:25 through 33 counting the cost he begins verses 25 and 26 now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them so he's walking now he's outside of the house if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children brother and sisters brothers and sisters yes even his own life also he cannot be my disciple So the word for hate here in the Greek, it, it can be translated as hate. It's also to be seen as to love less. So in a sense, Jesus is talking about priority. Jesus talked about how we love ourselves, we're to love others, we already love ourselves. We're to love our family. We're to do these things, take care of our family. So he's not saying that you are to hate them in the sense of they have no meaning, no account in your life. But there is to be a ranking of priority in our relationship with Jesus and with others. And so we find that in John 12, 25, he says, he who loves his life will lose it. But he who hates his life will in this world will keep it for eternal life so this ranking of priority I greatly love my family but it is Jesus Christ who has anchored me throughout my life and is still at work in my life to form me into the image of God forming me into the image of his son and so Paul he explains how God works in our lives the lives of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Um, if you don't have this marked in your Bible, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, I would encourage you, this is a good place to mark and write something if you have enough margin to do so. But this is known as the five golden links, or the five golden links of salvation. Five things that Paul mentions in this passage that each one of them he mentions in past tense, not in future tense or in present tense. So it's a work that God has already done for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse. That's the one that we often quote Got bad things happening in someone's life, you quote it to them. Maybe horrible timing to do that for them, but we still often do that. You know, all things work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. And we leave off the context of the whole thing. For him whom he knew, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among His brethren. Verse 30. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. While it is true, while we're in this life, in this flesh, we are a work in progress What I want us to see from God's perspective, we are a finished work. Each of these links and the five golden links of salvation, they are each in the past tense. God has foreknown, he has predestined, he has called, he has justified, he has glorified. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means that we are to put Christ first above ourselves, above all others. In verse 27, it says, And whoever does not bear his cross cannot come after me. Who does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I put the cannot in the wrong spot. So I'll read it for clarity once again. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Cross bearing, when these words were penned by Luke. Cross-bearing was not a glorious thing. You can sell a lot of product on TV, like pillows and towels and slippers, and have a little cross every time you advertise. That's cool to see. But cross-bearing in Jesus' day was death. And those who bore a cross in Jesus' day did so on their way to be crucified the Romans would cause them to bear the beam that they were to die upon with an accusation written before them of why they were being put to death that was cross bearing in Jesus's day and Jesus had not yet went to the cross yet this would have more of an impact when we learn of Jesus bearing his own cross and the accusation that was put over his head that no doubt was before him as he went through the streets and the Via Della Rosa. But it was not glorious. It would be like some have tried to modernize this and saying, in this way, Jesus, if he said it in today, whoever does not bear his hanging noose, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his electric chair, we don't have high regard for those things, either one. But for believers, it speaks of our no longer being in rebellion against God, but submitting to the Lord's authority over our lives. And this submission is to be daily. In Luke 9, 23, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and daily follow me. It's a daily commitment. Following Jesus is the mark of a disciple and we are to do so daily. It speaks about a a daily discipline that we are to have in our lives. Yes, we are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified in God's perspective, but in this life, we need to be daily walking in the ways of the Lord that people can see and know that we are Christ's followers. So counting the costs, he gave us three examples and so the point three, counting the cross, verses 28 through 33, but the three examples, the count, uh, counting the cost of building something, and then counting the cost of war, and counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. First, the tower, 28 through 30, it says, In which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, Lest after he he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. So tower building back in that day, it was, yes, for the protection of a city, but also people who had property, a vineyard owner, um, maybe they're animals, they would build towers, watchtowers, where they could keep watch on their property overnight just to protect their goods that they had, that which they owned. And so Jesus talks about the importance. If you're going to build a tower, you want to sit down and make sure you can finish the work, that you have uh, enough to complete the work, to build the tower, to do the work that You have planned to do. So anyone who would be unable to finish, they started the project. He doesn't even talk about laying a stone on the tower. He just talks about laying the foundation and that's it. All they have is a foundation. I remember, and this reminded me, not until now, not until I was reading this passage just here in the pulpit, Years ago, I was doing a job at the old Motorola plant in the area, and they were going to have their national headquarters in this town. They built a deep, deep, it was going to be a five-story building, it had a deep footing basement foundation. And that's all they ever did with it. And so we were there remodeling the front of this building, and uh, just... To the east of us was this huge hole in the ground that had been sitting there for years. It seemed like such a waste. They probably had new management that came in and said, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. And so it's like, yeah, but we already started this. That's okay. We don't care. reminds me of our military sometimes. I was told by someone in the military that when the budget time comes out right before the end of the budget year, you have all this money and they start, they want to make sure they spend everything they got, whatever was set aside for them, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, it doesn't matter, Space Force, you want to make sure you spend because you want to make sure you at least get that much and maybe more next year. So this uh, Marine was telling me that at the end of the year, yeah, new chairs, new everything. It's like we just got it all new because we want to make sure that we spent down the budget. But we look at it and we think, what a waste. Building a foundation for a tower, not being able to build the tower on top of it, the people, it would become a laughingstock in the community. And They'd go buy it and see this, unfinished work and I even envisioned envisioned that the tower was half built but not able to be completed we look at the text it just talks about the foundation they didn't even get the work past the foundation at the house of Philip the evangelist after Agabus prophesied to Paul that he would be bound by the Jews in Jerusalem delivered to the Gentiles and the brothers and sisters pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem Paul responded in this way he was a man who had learned to count the cost this is his response in acts 21:13 he said what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart for i'm ready not only to be bound but to die at jerusalem for the sake of the lord jesus paul was truly someone who had counted the cost of following jesus Also, the cost of war. Jesus takes this at a different... And it made me think of what's going on with Israel right now. Hamas coming against Israel. Hamas does not have the strength to outright come against Israel. Israel militarily is a stronger nation. But Hamas is winning a psychological war. And that is what they have been banking on for years, that they could win the psychological battle. This is just here in this, counting the cost of war, just looking at the numbers. What king, verses 31 through 32, going to make war against another king does not sit down first, consider that whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So in this particular case, he's counting the cost. He's saying that it's two to one. They have 20,000 soldiers. We only have 10,000. We'll never be able. Our technology is not there. We can't defeat them. So he opts out for peace instead. We should know that in our lives, when people battle against God, but they should just know you're never going to defeat God. God will always win. God is God, and we are not. Once we figure that out, it's a good place to be. But we need to make peace. The Bible tells us that He is our peace. In Ephesians two fourteen through 16, He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, this is speaking Jew and Gentile, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross by putting to death the enmity, we need to make peace. Counting the cost, the beginning of counting the cost with God is making peace with God. Jim Elliot, on October 28th 1949, was a missionary who wrote in his journal these words, he is no fool who can give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. A little over six years later, on January 8th, 1956, Jim, along with four other missionaries would be killed by the Huarian people in Ecuador. Jim's journal stands as a testimony that he was a man who was willing to count the costs. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The third, counting the costs, counting the cost of being Jesus' disciple, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, whoever like you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. So unless we count the cost of family, of cross-bearing, forsaking all, these things for Jesus, Jesus said, you can't be my disciple, is putting Christ first in our lives. Christ is the foundation upon which I have built my life. Paul would also say to the group of Ephesians, before he went to Jerusalem in Acts 20:24 20, he said none of these things move me they were every city he was going to as he's making his way back to Jerusalem they were prophesying saying death and chains await you there they were trying to say paul don't go death and chains await you there and Paul said you're breaking my heart and in Acts twenty, twenty four he says, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify of the gospel of grace, the grace of God. Counting the cost. Paul wrote about it in Ephesians three, seven through eleven, where he says, Whatever things that were gained to me, these I have counted for loss, indeed. I have counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed into his death, if by any means I may attain to the right resurrection from the dead, someone who counts the cost of discipleship, loves Jesus above all others, takes up their cross daily to follow him, these are they who have learned to count the cost. And have you counted the cost of following Jesus in your own life? And we close out in two verses, the savory versus the unsavory. Verses 34 and 35, it closes out Luke 14 for us. He begins in beginning of verse 34, salt is good. In their day, salt was not only used for flavor, it was used for preservative. They didn't have freezers or refrigerators. They had salt, and salt was worth A lot of money. When they offered sacrifices at the temple, every sacrifice had to be sprinkled with salt. When Cyrus, I believe it was Cyrus or Darius, uh, gave instructions, uh, it might have been Darius at that time, but gave instructions for the Jews when they were rebuilding their temple and, and said to the people in that surrounding region, whatever they want, you give them. And they tagged the line and said, salt without limit. As much salt as they want, you give it. Salt was worth a lot. We like it. We use it daily. Most of us, I would say, most all of us do. We use it daily. It's for flavor, not so much for preserving our food today. But salt has those two basic uses. It's God's work in a believer's life that he has had this preserving influence in our lives. And we can be that preserving influence to others around us in this world. However, before we can preserve, before we can flavor the world with our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to be seasoned with the salt of Christ ourselves. We need Jesus in us before we can actually spread the gospel to others about the work of Jesus. I mean, you can tell others about Jesus and not be a believer, but it's more effective when it's coming from a believer. Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I think of that. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Think about what we say, how we speak with others tried to imagine the world. John Lennon did this. He tried to imagine the world that had no religion. He's not imagining no God now. He was killed not too long after that, writing that song. But he tried to imagine a world without religion. People have tried to imagine our world without believers in Jesus Christ. And I would hate to imagine our world without the preserving influence of Christ in it. One day they'll get to see that. But this is not that day yet. So the unsavory salt, Jesus said it's no good. He picks up. He began by simply saying salt is good and then continued in verse 34. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how can it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land or for the dunghill. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, first of all, I don't know. The theologians really trouble over this. It's not fit for land or the dunghill. They have a lot to say about that phrase there. If you want to read about it, you can. They are not quite sure what Jesus meant by it. It could be that it was a reference that people in Jesus' day specifically understood, and we just don't get it today. And think about some tried to say, well, they, they used to use salt as a fertilizer. What does salt do to any grass or weed or anything you put it on? It It just kills it. So you're not going to use it as a fertilizer. Others said that, well, maybe they used it to put it on the Uh, manure to keep it fresh until they used it as a fertilizer. Well, Once again, if it's sprinkled with salt, even if it's manure, it gets to the field, it's going to kill what's there. So it's a difficult one. I can't answer it. Theologians love to toil over these things, and they can't answer it. So that one's kind of an enigma. Maybe you can come up with something. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give it to us. But it's good for nothing. You just throw it out. Here's another thing that they talk about. Salt is always salt. It doesn't lose its flavor. And so I was thinking about that. It can lose its potency if it's diluted enough. And I think in our life sometimes we may dilute our lives with so many things, so many things that we lose that seasoning that we are supposed to be in this life in Matthew 5:13 you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how is it to be seasoned it is good for nothing is thrown out and trampled under the foot of men now theologians don't have a difficulty with that they used to take older salt and just salt the paths you salt them and the weeds won't grow there and you make these permanent paths it's good for nothing. If we get too deluded in this, by this world, by the cares of this life, buying a piece of ground, buying some oxen, a new car, uh, through marriage we can get so diluted that we lose our usefulness or our worth, our true worth as believers in Jesus Christ is to be the salt in this world, a preserving influence in this world. And I pray that we would be savory saints, useful for the kingdom of God, what we've seen today in a lesson that I titled Counting the Cost. We looked at the invited, the uninvited guests and those who believe in Jesus Christ. They will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you want to be part of the invited guest list in heaven, you have to believe in Jesus. Counting the Cost, we looked at. And ask the question, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? And we just looked at the savory, the unsavory. May we be savory saints and useful for the kingdom of God. So I'd mentioned that I've already taught Luke 15. So we're going to skip Luke 15, go to chapter 16. We are in the chronological journey through the Gospels. We began this at the beginning of last year. But Luke has this section that began in chapter 13, goes all the way into chapter 18, that really doesn't fit with the other Gospels too well, so we're kind of parking in Luke for a little while. Uh, we'll pick up in Luke 16 next time, but if you'd like to look back on May 21st, I did a lesson called "Lost and Found, and I taught from Luke Chapter 15, it is Lesson 52. So you can look on our website and find that lesson. Let's go ahead and stand together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, our our world is in calamity. But not so much here and now. So right now, Lord, we're being troubled by wars and rumors of wars. And I pray, Lord, that in these troubling times that we can gather together as the body of Christ. And when we sing, when we hear your word being taught, that we can have just this collective sigh of relief, knowing, Lord, that all things are in your care and in your hand. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us now as we close out in the song of worship. If you're working in our hearts, Lord, collectively as a church, individually, Lord, it's a time of singing, it's a time of prayer. For those, Lord, who would like prayer, Pastor Kevin down front, the prayer bench is open. For those who are listening online, Lord, maybe hearing this at another time, may they just cry out to you now. Be with us now, Lord, as we close out in worship, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.